Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. At this point, you've probably uh, heard my hard work news episode, which is a bit insane with the defector and everything. But I do have to say, we're recording this before I finally do my final cut of that thing. I want to do something that uh, annoys me to no end, because I still, even when I'm reporting about the war, get all sorts of people who complain about this. Now, you know, I've been doing this show for a while now. I consider myself... You know, somewhat of an expert in Soviet Terra and all this stuff, since I have a master's degree on it and I've been working in this. However, you know, every time I post something about the Russian Communist Party or what they believe in, or, uh, I don't know, mention the word socialist or something, there's always, always someone who will write to me an angry email or post on Twitter or whatever telling me that, oh, Kristaps, you don't know what socialism is, let me tell you. And, uh, of course, they tell me, and that's from a totally weird perspective, and I've been trying to kind of put these things together because, well, obviously we're talking about two different things, three different things, I don't know how many different things. So to finally put this at rest, so that you, dear listeners, would finally understand in the future what I mean when I say socialist, and what is this socialism anyways? Well, I have invited two of uh, my uh, my best podcasting buddies here. Here is um, honorable and, uh, well, mostly uh, great... Except the times when, when he's not. Um, Mr. Heaton. I, I will very much take the title of mostly great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> delighted to be here. Look, it's, it's just a joke. You know, I have to banter a bit. Oh, and then there's also Alex. You've oh, heard him like a bunch of times. No one cares at this point. <laughs> look, look, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They're great guys. It's just that, uh, you know, I really, I've been through a lot lately. Like, seriously, a lot. And uh, I wanted to do this just to get a chip off my shoulder and everything. And... It's been very humid in Latvia recently. Uh, you know, there's the, the weather's been kind of off. Uh, Bitcoin is down. You've really had a tough. Is anything else happened that that? Uh, yeah, it's it's been, it's been tough. Oh, well, you know, random explosions. Uh, me yeah. having to undergo uh, multiple microsurgeries to get the fucking glass out of my legs. You know, the, the also it's glass, so you know you can't really see it in, in X-rays, which makes it extra fun. Nothing that special. I mean, at this point, at this point, also I have to mention that uh, as we're recording this. Just so you knew the whole level of bizarre reality that I live in, my microphone literally got accidentally put into dishwasher and I had to run to a store and buy a new one. Wait, wait a minute. You accidentally put your microphone in a dishwasher. How did that happen? I, I, I posted that email. Like, uh, It's my girlfriend. She's a biologist and, and you know, she, she's doing her PhD. And of course, they, um, they absolutely do not use their lab equipment to grow uh, scientifically best weed ever possible. And they do not test their product whatsoever. 
They, they never do that. Of course, never. Chris Jobs, I got to cut in because as a uh, Californian who's lived here for going on nine years, actually, I'm going to contest the scientifically best weed ever. I mean, I live in California. It's the one silver lining for everybody who lives here. Did you Did you not hear I said allegedly? Allegedly. That's that's fair. Ah. That's fair. That is fair. At least, you know, and and uh, at, at one point she was like trying to tidy up my studio because it's, it's a bit of a mess. It's my man cave after all. And and she noticed my mic is a bit, you know, dirty and stuff. And, and she at that point decided that it would be a great idea to throw it in the dishwasher. How dirty does a microphone have to get before your girlfriend puts it in a dishwasher? Are we talking like, I, I'm now picturing an old-timey microphone covered in Ted Kaczynski-level mold. Like, oh, like no, something no, no. weird like that. Like I'm picturing like a Unabomber microphone setup. Is that what I should be thinking? No. No, no that, is, that is not. See, it's... A it used to be black, but it's super scratched since the one time when I visited LA and on the way there, Polish uh, security in the airport or in Warsaw just disassembled it to, to check if it didn't have any explosives in it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, we have this weird club. But I like to quote a, a thing from just to get this going, because otherwise, you know, Anna's going to shred this anyway. I want to I give you a quote from literally the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. Like, literally, they are the continuation of Lenin's party. They're led by Mr. Zyuganov. They're still in the Gosduma. They're sort of opposition, but, you know, one of those sanctioned things. And this is what they have to say about the Western people. Mm. The Westerners who try to pretend to be communists are nothing but fakes, liberal fascists, who are usurping our ideology. No true communist would ever allow uh, gay people to dictate the rights of the working man. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, I've also heard a term called cultural Marxism. Oh, yeah. Which to people uh, who are from the Eastern European parts, I've, I've read actually my, my dad's uh, school books because you had to study historical Marxism at school there. And let me tell you that historical Marxism is, at least to my understanding, literally impossible because Marxism is materialistic by default. Marxism cares only about means of production. So like in the West, as far as I understand, socialism kind of means something else than in Russia, as far as I get it. Because in Russia, they don't like minorities or gay people or anyone else really who isn't active supporter of, of, of things. Communists don't have a good track record of being cuddly for people that they don't like. They, communism has never really been a very pluralistic philosophy when implemented. I would like to ask you, dear gentleman here, is just uh, explain to me a poor Eastern European man who eats his potato and drinks his beer. What What is socialism for the West? For us, it is obviously uh, following the ideals of Lenin and sometimes Stalin for some people, but mostly Lenin. Alex, do you mind if I take this for a minute? Because I'm, I'm, I'm fresh on the political orphanage, my show, talking to Freddie DeBoer, who was an actual Marxist. We, we had a, an hour-long interview recently on the political orphanage where I just had a nice conversation with a Marxist yes. to figure out what they think. It was an excellent interview, by the way. I thought he gave a very good—I mean, I've always liked Freddie's work. I mean, he, he really provides an amazing, like, straightforward snapshot— of Marxism. I thought that the way he answered all your questions, your questions were great. His answers were great. I, I have to second any recommendation to listen to that because it was really a really good show. Thank I you. Thought. Well, and on top of that too, like I, I am not a Marxist or a socialist, but I, I do feel very strongly that if you're going to be combating something, you need to know what it is rather than having straw men that you're, you're arguing with, which to bring us to your question, Christophs, I think that the term socialism means a bunch of different things in the West. Um, I will defer to you on this, but my understanding of how 
how the Soviets would have defined socialism is very different than how uh, the distinction we make between socialism and communism. So my understanding is that when I go back and read old Soviet party pronouncements from like 1960, 1970, they would say things like, we believe we are 10 years away from achieving communism. Oh, yeah, because there were different types of socialism. Even there was right. war socialism, advanced socialism, socialism with the human face, all that nonsense. But in the basis of all of this, the most important tenet of Soviet socialism is the fact that the private property is evil. Which is a basic Marxist tenet. I mean, like that's in the Communist Manifesto. We want to abolish yes. private property. It's my understanding that the Soviets made a distinction between communism and socialism and tended to talk of communism as the utopian endpoint they were working to. And socialism is what we are to get to that point, which is not how Americans typically think of it. Communism probably involves um, a lot of things you'd see like in, in anarcho-communism as well. In the ideal version of everything, you, true communism would actually have like no money even. Right. There, well, there's the withering of the state where eventually you get to that end point, but you never actually get there, right? In an American context, I think there's almost two different ways that we can define socialism, and I'm going to be a bit snotty about this. There's the way that economists or people who know what they're talking about would define socialism, and then there's the high school sophomore definition, which is the predominant one within the United States at this time. So the way that pretty much any economist or political historian or economic historian would define socialism versus capitalism is... Capitalism means the means of production is owned by the private sector. In socialism, the means of production is owned by the state. So socialism would mean that the shoe factory is owned by the state, that the, the machinations by which we build things and make things and the great levers of the economy are in control of the government, whereas in the capitalism, they're done by the private sector. That's that's the very basic definition of socialism and capitalism understood by economists. Well, wait, wait, what you just said, kind of, it really struck back into my head and I just remembered a Radio Yerevan joke that I must tell you, obviously it's relevant. <laughs> Radio Yerevan gets asked, what is the difference between socialism and capitalism? Radio Yerevan answers. Well, you see, in capitalism, man exploits his fellow man. In socialism, it's the other way around. <laughs> he is uh, the Mark Twain of, of Eastern Europe. <laughs> That's a um, good way of describing it, yeah. <laughs> so so the, the sophomoric definition that I think becomes the predominant one in the United States, which drives me batshit crazy to talk about, is something like this. Uh, socialism means sharing and capitalism means greed. Yeah. When you're talking to someone who invariably has never read a book on economics, that's what they're meaning. Let, let, me, let me put this straight. I'm, of course, playing a bit more dumb than I am, but I want to get this to the finer details. Uh -huh. So you guys are both here on my show that I will put out and, and it's going to receive some ad revenue and some money for it. And I'm not paying you for that. And you're here, here from your own volition. So we're kind of cooperating. So mm -hmm. what we're doing here is there are two ways how to look at this. Number one, I'm either exploiting you or we're, or, or we're having some socialist party here. Which is it? <laughs> well, that, that, see, again, that's like if, if we're using the sophomore definition of socialism, it means sharing. But if that's true, then the Koch brothers are probably the best living socialists at this time. Exactly. Like, like Because yeah. they, they donate more money than any of us will ever do in our entire lives. Dude, could you please stop quoting uh, communist anecdotes? Because... Uh, <laughs> 
Because, <laughs> um, like, first of all, you shouldn't define an economic system based on the intentions because that's very stupid. I can't see into Alex's heart. I can't see into your heart. I don't know what you deep down really want. All economic systems are purportedly for the benefit of the people that we're arguing about. Diehard capitalists don't get up and talk about how it's their goal to immiserate the masses and force children into coal mines with a bullwhip. Diehard socialists don't talk about gulags. Like everybody wants the good thing, right? So trying to define it based on, on intent is silly. It, it makes much more sense to define it structurally, which is how economists would do it. Right. And so th there's that kind of sophomoric definition. And then to compound matters, what Americans typically mean when they say socialism is social democracy. Um, and, and they always mean Northern Europe. Whenever they talk about socialism, they never, ever, ever, ever mean Venezuela, China, uh, the Soviet Union, or any of the North Korea, 50 failed and failing states. What they mean is Northern Europe, which I have to be very clear on this, is not socialist. It is a social democracy. Yes. This is kind of the thing which is uh, which I find funny because every time you point a critique of Soviet Union, there's always some people who say Soviet Union wasn't socialist. Real socialism hasn't ever been tried before. All that nonsense. Yes. Yeah. Then I look back on my other side, my the like Russian speaking everyone, and they claim that the Soviet Union and Lenin's ideas was the only true socialism to ever exist. <laughs> I, it, well, it, see, this, Christoph, this is, uh, and I, Alex, I sure, apologize sure. For, for hogging it so much. I will, I will declamp here in a minute. This is one of the big problems I find with Americans trying to understand other countries is we don't bother to understand the other countries. So we don't understand socialism and communism from the actual horse's mouth of people that went through it. And we're constantly projecting socialism onto um, Scandinavian countries who are demonstrably market economies with a lower regulatory burden and less direction than our economy by by any metric. Right. Northern Europe is more capitalist than the United States. What they have is a very robust social safety net and higher taxes on the middle class. And that's a good discussion to have. And, and there's lots of really good things about those countries, but they would not identify as socialist. And so what we end up doing is when we say socialist, we really mean cute northern European capitalist countries with a robust social safety net. You know what's interesting about Sweden, by the way, about those countries? Sweden and, and, and Norway, at least. If you talk about political systems, what they have is, um, at least in political science classes over here, we get to learn about them as being Scandinavian democracies. See, the thing is, it's not a single party system. But there's a ruling coalition of various parties. Like they always stay in power. Like they have like three, four parties, and they always stay in power. What changes is like the division between them. So it's kind of like the ruling side will always stay in power. The internal positions will change a bit. And now uh, that's why they have issues because someone who's out from outside the spectrum, mm. like Swedish Democrats, right? If you've heard from them and the American news or, or from any Western media, because they take Swedish press releases, you would think they're super ultra mega neo-Nazis. Actually, they're way to the left of Republicans. <laughs> If you look at what they actually do, obviously they play up the, the populist vote and, hmm. and the hate stuff. But if you kind of actually look at their program, they're to the left of Republicans. Well, it's always it's always easier to demonize your opponents than to deal with their ideas head on. Yeah, oh, but that actually allows me uh, a good segue to jump in there because I take a bit more of a behaviorist way of looking at things just in general. But I, I am also kind of cynical. And I think, Andrew, you're absolutely right in, in defining the sophomoric version of socialism that's described here. Um, and I'll add to that, though, and I think what you're talking about when people are referring to Northern Europe, those are the people who are fine with that. The people who invoke socialism who aren't invoking Northern Europe, almost always invariably uh, right of center, 
are basically just using it to describe any social program they don't like. Also true. Like it's it's a shorthand, exactly. And, and and those those same people like by my definition, the military would be a a socialistic institution because it means that the government owns the means of production absolutely. as opposed to having like a bunch of mercenary armies. And the, the trick is like let's all emotionally declamp from these terms and argue about what's going to work best. But I, I think you're right. Republicans tend to slather socialism or communism on just anything the government does that they don't like, regardless of whether or not it qualifies. Absolutely. And I and I have to wonder like you know, I think we're all around the same age. We're all, you know, in the millennial cohort. And I think that the problem that I w- was witnessing of people using socialism as a shorthand, uh, as a pejorative initially was with Obama, but I I can't imagine that isn't a tactic that's been used before to, oh, yeah. to slander you know, people. Uh, it, it goes way, way back. I mean, like through, through the 50s, there were some actual commies running around in America, but basically the Republican card for 40 years was anybody left of Reagan yes. is a socialist or a crypto socialist. Right. Just kind of like anybody that's a conservative that's scary is a fascist. Exactly. Well, this kind of shows how, you know, how there's been a drift of meanings. Like for a long, long while, at least, you know, you would call a very evil person a Nazi, right? I've always been, you know, telling people that if you call everyone you don't like a Nazi, then that term loses all meaning. And at this point, when we all and everyone in the United States, since Russia versus Ukraine blew up, and we all know that Russia just continuously slams Ukraine as being Nazis, and they call Zelensky a Nazi, even though he's Jewish, because for them, Nazis are are a totally different thing there. Uh, that's a different conversation. I think at this point, if you call someone a Nazi just because you don't like them, uh, I think this has kind of lost a bit of its punch since, again, everyone knows that Putin's just slamming the term all over the place. I, I don't know how how much do you wade into the American political discourse on Twitter because it really is just Nazi this, Nazi that, Holocaust this, genocide that. And it, 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 it just to, to give Andrew some context here, sort of my for lack of a better term, my beat has especially lately been mostly Third Reich history. So by the way, actually, I, I listened to your interview with uh, Rainer Zeidelman, and I, I love Zeidelman. And I, I heard you say on the Freddie DeBoer episode afterward, you were saying that he's coming back, or beforehand you were saying he's coming back. So I'm excited. Oh, to you did? That. I love that. Yeah, he's great. And he's a real- Alex does this in every time I have him as a guest with another podcaster. I mean- <laughs> I segue. Yeah, I have to, I have to geek out a little week. bit. But my point of bringing that up is just that I, I, I think that when I see the invocations of just anything tangential to the Third Reich, I, I just start to see red because it just never applies. And I get the feeling that for you, it's kind of similar when you hear people talking about socialism. Though, obviously, when you're talking about the Third Reich, you're, you have a much heavier moral burden hung around your neck when you're talking about it. That there should also be a moral burden about socialism and communism. I think that people don't respect that enough. See, the, see, the, there's a bit of a difference here because, you know, um, sure. the fascism was purely authoritarian in the sense that you had this one clear leader. In socialism, at least in Soviet Union, you still had the one leader, but no matter what, even in the whole glorification period, you know, uh, idealization of Stalin, all that, whatnot, even Lenin, everything, no matter how idealized everything got, it was still the party who was in the number one spot. Mm-hmm. It was always pushed to that end. Therefore, you know, even though you would love to associate Stalin with with uh, the evils of the Soviet Union and everything in socialism, but um, you, you kind of can't because at the end, there was still a party system underneath it. Mm-hmm. Even Stalin constantly... Stalin never said that he's the supreme ruler. He always said by the party, by the Politburo, and everyone understood, of course, Stalin decided and whatever. It was a more sneaky thing 
and this kind of tradition is also why you know why Putin still keeps sanctioned opposition parties around. Well, the, the, the definitions melt very quickly when you start getting into them. And I, I'm fine using definitions and labels if we're using them clearly in order to advance the conversation that we're having. Uh, yes, and accurately. Exactly. A, a, yes. a lot of the time, they end up becoming these kind of linguistic totems mm. um, that we bludgeon each other with. And we're just fighting. What we're really saying is my team's a good team, your team's evil. I, I think those kind of discourse conversations are stupid and useless. When we're using terms like fascism, communism, so on and so forth, the, the, the terms kind of break down very quickly. Like, yeah. you could look at North Korea and it is literally a monarchy, but it's also communist. But you could also say it's fascist. We're like, like I think you can make a good case right now that China is more fascist than it is communist. I, I do tend to make that case, actually. I, I, I believe it was uh, Peter Zihan on his recent book, uh, End of the World is Just Beginning, was, uh, I think he referred to them as a, oh man, I think he called them an ethno-nationalist neo-fascist yeah. state. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, Chris Jobs and I have talked about this. I mean, my my partner, uh, Molly, she's Chinese, so we have connection to the – I don't want to say Chinese politics, but I am I tend to be more aware of what's going on over there just because I hear about it a lot, but I, I look into it a lot. And it's just – it's very clearly something that – it's clever. I love the word games that, that uh, the CCP have used where they've said we are uh, – I believe they said that we're communism with Chinese characteristics or, or capitalism with Chinese characteristics, whatever it mm. was. When yeah. they said that, I, when I read that, I read rather, I thought that was probably the most accurate way to describe them because they don't fall neatly into the communist niche, right. if you will. I, I just don't see it. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. The other bit that I think further complicates this, and uh, Christoph, I'm very curious to get your perspective on this, not coming out of the American experience. We are laboring, in my view, very falsely on the idea that all politics falls along a left-right spectrum. And so there is this persistent notion in the United States that if you take conservatism and you give it steroids, it turns into fascism. And if you take liberalism and you give it steroids, it turns into communism. <laughs> I, I would posit that trying to understand all of politics on what is essentially a granulated binary <laughs> is a fool's errand. That That's like trying to 
literally explain every religion on the planet as being somewhere on the Catholic Protestant spectrum and saying, oh, Jews, well, Jews are very, they're very anti-papal infallibility, but they're very Protestant in terms of tradition. Like, no, it's nonsense. It's its own thing, right? Mm -hmm. And like in the American experience, I I would argue that classical liberals, libertarians, liberals, and constitutional conservatives are all kind of coming out of the same intellectual heritage, which is intellectually distinct from leftists or blood and soil, right-wing European populism, um, the idea that it just uh, fascism is just extreme conservatism and communism is just extreme liberalism, I, I, I think is is nonsense. But if you're if you're having to understand everything in the world on the spectrum, then it starts to be this weird thing where you you plug it in to make sense. Look, look, look! I can look. I can I can debunk the literal thinking with with one simple empirical evidence. Really, the party called National Bolshevik Party of Russia exists. <laughs> Their flag <laughs> yep, is literally yep. a Nazi flag, yep. except replace swastika with a hand grenade. Oh, it's a hand grenade. Their leader is Limona. Well, wait, I thought that, I thought it was a, a hammer and sickle. They changed it to a hand grenade. Uh, that, that's at least that's that's in the current oh, branch. Man. Hammer and sickle was a bit too on the nose, but uh, yeah, they they are national Bolsheviks. They are exactly the kind of people. These guys honestly think that the only thing Hitler did that was wrong was invading Russia. <laughs> These are the guys who fully support the whole Molotov-Ribbentrop pact and think that was the best thing ever. You know, the guys who think that the time when Stalin and Hitler were totally best buddies. <laughs> Which, just on a side note, they never were. Like, Hitler had no intention of keeping his word with Stalin, but that's a whole... I highly doubt Stalin did as well, but that's another matter. Right, but basically, yeah. these guys um, these guys are what happens when, um, when someone, you know, looks at what Hitler did in his political views and Stalin... And then decides that's a good idea to combine them both. Well, and like like Hitler to to go back to the the when I interviewed Rainier Zeitelman on on the political orphanage about a year ago, I mean the the National Socialist Party identified as socialist. I mean for, for the record, I, I think fascism, insofar as it's officially reared its ugly head, is is kind of a basket case of things. I don't think it's a clearly defined ideology. I think it's more of just a bunch of bad authoritarian impulses bumbling around. But that said, the like Mussolini was a socialist. He became a fascist, but in his speeches, he simultaneously claimed to be a socialist. He did not see these two um, uh, camps as contravene to one another. He saw it as sort of a, I, I am both of these things simultaneously. The National Socialist Party in Germany was socialist, but it was ethno-socialist as opposed to international class socialist like Trotsky. So Trotsky, and I defer to you both on this if I'm getting my Soviet history wrong here, Trotsky would have said like the actual conflict is a global class thing, that nation states are somewhat immaterial compared to the class, and you ought to identify with the proletariat. And the difference between your proletariat brother across the border in Belgium is less of an issue than the class here in your country between you and the bourgeoisie. And that once the Soviet or that once the communist revolution happens, we'll, we'll get rid of all these nonsensical Westphalian nation states and be brothers with our class. Whereas Germany saw socialism within the confines of, of a nation state and an ethnic state. So it's international socialism versus national socialism. But you could be a socialist and a Nazi at the same time, at least according to them. Right. And I wanted to um, highlight that, actually, because that's another thing that trips up a lot of Americans, especially on the right, is the the socialism connection to Nazism, which, again, I don't take that seriously whenever I hear people say in shorthand the Nazis were socialists. I'm just thinking, okay, well, now I know what you're trying to actually get at, so I don't even have time for that. But it, it is not untrue that the Nazis had a lot of socialist elements within 
their ideology because of course they did. And as you, I, I really like how you put it. It's ethno socialism. That's a very good way of describing uh, Nazi ideology, especially through the lens of economic um, seizure. Though interestingly enough, economic seizure, which you and Zeitelman talked about within Nazism, is very much not a like. Let's. It was not a dictatorship of the proletariat. It was. Oh no 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 no. You can still be capitalist, but when when Hitler tells you to jump, you just say how high. It's very similar to how China's economy is run these days. I, I would say it's the regulatory state with a lot of guns. Exactly. It's like you 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 own <laughs> yeah. the property and you get the money, but we're going to tell you what to do with the property. And you right. wanted to do a shoe factory, but now you're making munitions, and you can keep your name on the deed. We don't care, but you're going to do what we want. Right. I kind of also think, you know, that the, this whole literal thing that we're having with, we obviously can see the whole problems with it because we like to point out that something is this on the spectrum when it's just somewhere outside of it. I mean, if you look at Japan, for example, it is an ultra-corporate feudal state, essentially, by how Zaibatsus and big corporations work, how you work for them all your life, how they hire people. It is basically the old daimyos who just set up corporations and now you're not a vassal to a daimyo. Yeah. You are a loyal worker, an employee of this corporation, just like your dad and grandpa. It is. It's Well, it's its own thing, actually. I, I And I wanted to actually, there was um, an analogy, Heaton, that you used. I believe it was in the episode where you were talking to Zeitelman, where you were saying that, and I actually think I, I did quote, I quoted you in an episode I did recently uh, called... Oh, yeah, wow. So, this has been great for my self-esteem. Thanks, guys. <laughs> no problem, man. No, was a, I did an episode called Stakeholder Nazism where I did this sort of – it doesn't really matter. The point is I, I quoted you on this because it really is how I think is the best way to look at what ideology actually is. You said it, it's less like notches on a post, like a linear post, and more like ripples in a pond. Yeah. And I, I've been saying – for years, the the language I, I just like your visual analogy there, but I've been saying for years that ideology or politics is an ecosystem. It has very little to do with linearity or even a horseshoe. I think the horseshoe theory, as fun as it is, is kind of reductive. I think mm -hmm. looking at politics as an ecosystem of things responding to one another is the best way to understand it. And there's another aspect of uh, Nazism that is very much not like communism or socialism, though, that I wanted to highlight. And Chris Jobs, it came from something you said about how even though Stalin was, you know, he was the man of steel, he was the face of, you know, Soviet Russia, especially, you know, in the years leading up to and after the Second World War. But the party continued without him. I don't think, and maybe, Keaton, you can uh, ask Zeitelman about this because he is really the Hitler expert in the room, if you will. But I don't see, and, and we also know from hindsight, but I don't see the Nazi party continuing without Hitler. It really was a personality cult. Mm. They, you know, there was attempts to keep it alive, like the Werwolf movement after the war, and that not ever taking off because of just poor resources or lack of nerve. I, I, I don't know. I think it's probably a bit of both, but I just don't see... Nazism continuing without its inceptor, for lack of a better word. I think you're you're right about that. Sure. Um, if I if I'm going to give credit to communism for a minute, while there are lots of different warring tribes over what true communism is and that kind of thing, it it does have ideological tectonic plates that it's operating on. It does have a a body of almost theological work mm -hmm. that is what it. I mean, there's a prophet. Yep. There's there's all these different things. So you can come up with a schema to describe the ideology of communism in, in fairly good detail. Whereas fascism is this real grab bag. And wherever it manifests, it's very different. One Like Fr Franco's Spain is very different than Mussolini's Italy, which is very different than um, Hitlerian Germany. And you can have like this very 
super anti-Semitic cult of personality kind of thing that happens in Germany. You can have this like weird proto-socialist fascism that happens in Italy. You can have Franco, I don't know as much about Spain, but this kind of like traditionalist reactionary backlash kind of thing that happens. And, and part of that is that it's not interested in it. Fascism kind of looks at mm-hmm. ideology and it, we would all be shot in a fascist state. We would be considered pointy-headed intellectuals that need to be liquidated. And and the people that are running it aren't really reading books and writing books. They're, they're interested in power and action. The intellectual underpinnings of it really aren't very important to them. I need to push back a little bit on that uh, because in, in Nazi Germany, there were a lot of people writing books, but like Alfred Rosenberg, but Hitler called them unreadable. So you're both, you're you're right and also not right in that sense. Which, which is saying something because I read the first two chapters yeah. of Mein Kampf and it like, I thought it was going to be at least interesting. Like I thought I was going to read like the Necronomicon <laughs> of Nazis and it's just incohate babble. It's just a an old man ranting about oh, yeah. Prussia yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in like a completely nonlinear manner. I wanted to add to this because I've um, just to hear and said this, this is also one of the points there that Soviet Union was this communism was very system-based. Like I said, they taught scientific Marxism at schools. They had scientific atheism. Everything was based in these systems. And that was because, um, according to the Soviet Union, communism was inevitable. According to their belief of Marxism, it was an inevitability, a natural step in the right. progress yeah. of things. It was, it was a scientific certainty. Scientific certainty, yes. So they always had the system thing, which is why, for example, the KGB always, you know, they, they tortured you, but they made you... to. Sign that paper, paperwork, and orderly things, which is why you know I, I use Dungeons and Dragons terms because you know fascism was kind of like a catch-all term because, like you said, all these things were different, but we just you know put a blanket term on them. But mm. the Soviet Union had literally a book which they can point to at and say, "We are this thing. This is the system. This is how it operates." And and so I, I would I would call the Soviet system lawful evil and and um, yeah. not ah. like the, like uh, Hitler chaotic evil if, if you if you've played these things. I actually think that's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, I as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and Alex, to your point, I'm I'm glad you brought this up earlier. I think you're 100 percent right. Conservative or Republican tendency to like, oh, hold on, Nazis are socialists. Yeah, like there. I I I think it is extremely unhelpful for us armchair policy analysts or legislators or just voting citizens. It's extremely unhelpful helpful to try to understand this stuff as a way to weaponize and discount our intellectual enemies. Uh, And that's basically what happens with the terms Mm -hmm. socialist and fascist almost constantly, at least in an American context, is what people are really trying to do is say, if I take your thing and I add fertilizer to it, it will be this evil thing because deep down you're evil. And you, your thing should be discounted prima facie. And that's mm-hmm. a straight up logical fallacy. And it's stupid. And it's presuming that you can see into somebody's heart. And, and it's it's a very, very, I think, harmful and counterproductive practice for all parties involved to try to tether um, somebody to a bad thing in order to discount them. Right. To kind of put this in a more concrete perspective as, as a journalist here. Back when Black Lives Matter movement got going in the United States, and again, disclaimer here, I can't say I know anything in depth about that. I have just read about it from the sources available to me, and, and that's about it. But I can tell you that when that happened, when I, I forgot the guy who was uh, killed by, by the cop choking him with an ear. Oh, George Floyd. When, when those protests happened, what was going on there was that uh, the Russian propaganda portrayed, obviously they would portrait in, in the light that suits them, but what they were saying is that, look, they're claiming 
that they're socialists, the Black Lives Matter movement. But look at them. None of them are actual workers. Actual workers are all, you know, voting Republicans. So so that's kind of that party. Oh, they're they were leaning into the um the Dugan endorsed talking points there, the that are, are by extension the Steve Bannon endorsed talking points that lionizes the what we would back in the day call the peasant class. I think that when you look at like right wing populists in America, they're really invoking peasant rebellion vibes. Whoa, whoa, well, this makes sense to me, by the way. I yeah. The United States is built by peasants. Farmers are peasants, basically. You are a peasant country. Yeah. Soviet Union yeah. is a workers' country. Peasants were, mm-hmm. were are enemies of the state to be destroyed. Kulaks, yeah. collectivized and put into coal holes to make them yep. farm workers, all of them. Because a farmer can grow his own food. He does not need to rely on the state. Therefore, state has less yeah. power on him. Yeah. Lenin actually thought that uh, you know taking the land away from the peasants was a thing mm-hmm. to do. Oh, interesting. You, you mean like like he, like he wasn't you, really friendly to peasants and farmers. He was all about the workers. You see. Much more than the peasants. Uh, if you notice, there were no worker kulaks. Mm-hmm. This whole splitting up and collectivization, which mm-hmm. Stalin did, is basically turning an independent farmer. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Into a worker of a collectively owned farm. Interesting. You know, that's a thing. The United States, still different. Mm -hmm. And and I got to say, it is. And there's nothing like that in... The thing is, when you say the Black Lives Matter movement, that is such a broad term because there's the Black Lives Matter organization. But then there's the Black Lives Matter sentiment, and the sentiment is essentially the movement. It's decentralized. But if you focus only on the organization, I mean, this is going to be clipped out of context or yell, get, get me yelled at, but the Russian propagandists were right when they said – when they, if they were referring specifically to the organization, calling them not actually socialists or not actually Marxists, they're – Oh, no, they weren't. They, they totally were just splamming things because they, you know, they, they just like to bash okay. them I mean, it just – like you said, it suited their needs. It didn't matter about specificity, but there was plenty of controversy semi-recently – with, um, I believe it was the uh, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization named Patrice Coolers. There had been some questions related to the funding and where the funding had gone because they got hundreds of millions of dollars in donations over the course of several years. I actually never looked into like how that worked out, but I know here in California, they, I think they subpoenaed them to like get access to their books. Patrice Coolers, though, who herself refers to the the founders of the of the organization as quote unquote trained Marxists, was given a lot of crap, understandably so, when it came out that she spent tens of millions of dollars on multiple homes 
with money that she got from the organization and people and then she defended herself as still being a Marxist. And in, in, in her defense, most of the Marxists that come to power eventually do exactly that. Th- this is true. Uh, this so is like, like Fidel true. Castro, I think, was doing pretty well by the time he died. He <laughs> yes. wasn't in the duplex. And for some reason, when you point that out to active Marxists, at least in the West, they, they all deny that this is a feature of the system. But, you know, if you look at the empirical evidence. Christoph, to your point there, too, like you mentioned earlier in the program that um, when people invoke socialism, they'll say true socialism has never been tried. I would argue that we've also never had a true liberal free market state either. Um, the, the American experiment is riddled with crony capitalism. I have to, uh, and I, I, I am very proud that I get to quote Bismarck on my show. I, <laughs> politics is the art of the possible. Right. And it always has been. I mean, Bismarck, uh, Bismarck invented retirement pensions. Mm-hmm. Just so yeah. the social democrats who are, you know, enjoying Marxist ideas wouldn't get to uppity. He started basic welfare. He uh, was also an authoritarian and a man who thought Germany should be united by blood and iron. And then he went out and did just that. If you kind of portray that, like you said, all this sharing and, and you know, Obama's welfare is socialist, then at the same point, you have to take a look at Ultimate Prussian guy, his all of his portraits are in Pickelhaubes. The guy who who basically built Germany as a militaristic empire, an army with a state, right? Uh, basically, yeah, then he has to be socialist as well. I mean, and just kind of doesn't click in my head. But then again, who am I to say I'm just you know overeducated intellectual with a pointy head or something? I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the one thing I always thought was really funny, and this just struck me as a just – I don't know if it actually is an inconsistency with socialism uh, because, again, you know, there's so many interpretations of it. But the one thing that always like made me scratch my head was when people accused Obamacare of being socialist. I remember thinking – but I'm being forced to invest in the private sector. That doesn't strike me as very socialist. That strikes me as, well, frankly – I'm going to just have to say the F word, kind of fascist, actually. <laughs> you, yeah, the private sector owns it, but we're going to tell the private sector yep. how to do it. We're going to tell you how to interact with the private sector. That's not yep. socialism. Well, and that's the thing is there was, I mean, this is the thing where I, I referenced you, Heaton, in my uh, previous episode is that when people talk about, it's still kind of a niche subject. When t- people invoke stakeholder capitalism, as it's known under Klaus Schwab's definition, I see so many different publications, usually on the right, saying, oh, this is a Trojan horse for communism. And the more I looked at what stakeholder capitalism was doing, I just saw less and less and less comparisons one could make to communism. It is a much more top-down authoritarian way of doing things, but also top-down from a corporate side of things, not the state. It's it's very interesting in that respect. I believe the only place where I saw the fascist comparison to stakeholder capitalism, though, was from um, FEE, uh, FEE.org. They made a pretty – I think actually – I think about it. Maybe it was Rainer Zeidelman who wrote it. <laughs> it might have been him. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, it's it's a much more apt comparison, I think. When people invoke, quote unquote, left-wing economic policies in the West within a critical context, they tend to point to communism. And frankly, it's just because of superficial perceptions of what it means to be left and right. There's nothing really communist about about America at all. See, see, and, and, and those perceptions, by the way, matter a lot. Right. Because, for example, in the post-Soviet sphere, at least here in the Baltics, left and right mean totally different things. Absolutely. Because uh, right now it's a bit shifting, but uh, we had pro-Soviet Union people who were against Baltics getting independence. 
After independence happened and Soviet Union collapsed, all those people decided that, you know, they have to rebrand themselves. They can't just go on and be super kind of pro-communist anymore. That's kind of not cool because Communist Party as the Nazi Party are both illegal in Latvia, mind you. And yeah, so they just decided that they will now defend the rights of the Russian speakers and, and appeal to the human rights and everything. And they were funded by Putin and all that nonsense, basically, as some people like to call the fifth column and whatnot. But so it became known that, uh, well, leftism, at least here for a long... Now it's a bit changing. Now we actually have a progressive Western left party in, in the parliament, so that's good. So for a long time, it was the general knowledge that left parties are basically Russians who hate that we got our independence and who are Putin-funded. Those would be the left parties. The right parties are those parties who are pro-European and pro-Western. And that was, the, that was the split. Part of the problem with trying to define all politics based off of literally a bunch of dead Frenchmen discussing monarchical veto power during the French Revolution. Like maybe maybe that one mental heuristic was not universally adaptable to all situations. In the American context, let's say that you are super pro-choice and you are super pro-gun. You would then be a centrist? Like if you were like subsidized abortion for everybody, no questions asked, but also any gun you want in the world up to like a small nuclear missile. Like if you had that mindset, it would balance itself out and you would be a moderate. Like it makes no sense because but we're dude, 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 dude. Uh, again, I'm sorry, but you just, you just keep doing this. I have a, I have a Russian anecdote, which is about this subject that kind of intended to mock Americans in this whole context. It's, it's very rude, though, but just... just probably deserve it. <laughs> now, I don't know whether or not, uh, you know, I'm pro-choice or, or pro-life or whatever. I mean, on one hand, I really love killing babies, but on the other hand, I would really hate giving women a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's funny is like, what, like just the example you gave Heaton there, I, I love that you said, like, does that make you a centrist? And I'm like, he literally just laid out what I basically believe, and I don't see myself as a centrist at all. I mean, to, to be clear, I, you know, it, it's funny. We, that we also make like anarchists centrist, right? Like, how would that work? Right, exactly. Centrism exactly. is a thing that I, you know, when I was studying in college and I really went through political philosophy, I also tried to put myself in some boxes. And at one point, I really did define myself as, oh, I guess I'm a centrist. And I understood that, well, just like you guys, it makes centrist means nothing. I, I right now define myself um, as a guy who likes reading Marcus Aurelius and kind of enjoys Stoicism philosophy in my real life. That's about it. Right. Well, well the funny thing is, is centrism is another example here in the West, at least. This is more of an internet thing, I think, but it's become a meme where you mock people for being centrist. There's like, I believe it's a, uh, it's a subreddit called enlightened centrism, like r slash enlightened centrism. And that's like a slur. I'm on that one. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and, pe and people treat centrism as a slur. And it's like whenever I hear someone who treats centrism as a slur and they're coming from, you know, the left or the right, I always just think like, you know, you're proving these so-called centrists right by doing this, but, you know, they don't seem to care. Another thing that actually happens and, and why people, I think, in, in Western world, especially the United States, are so polarized is that, again, internet culture. Because well, you see, yeah. you have we have weird radicals on the internet, oh, yeah. fortune, whatever. And what they would do, and I've been witness to some of these things, you know, guys on fortune who are super pro-Trump because yeah, we have to be contrarian, have to be radical. Those are not real feminists who post like yeah, you know, abolish men. You know, men are all stupid. Yeah, that stuff is made by the far right people, and vice versa. A lot Kill of the, the super 
yeah, far right. Yeah. So like, a lot of the stuff is like the false flag is everywhere because you can't check. Well, you can, but but you know it. Well, it's amplified. I, we're, we're false conflating. Like I've I've worked on conservative networks in the past. When they say feminism, in my experience, they mean misandry. So the male equivalent of misogyny. And I'm like, well, I'm a feminist. My, my definition of feminism as I use it, which I think is the broadly accepted definition of feminism, is women are equally deserving of respect, opportunity, and equality before the law. Okay, I'm very much in favor of that. I, I also am a feminist. I have read feminism philosophy. You know, it's a part of political spectrum. And I broadly agree to feminist ideas. I, too, am a feminist. Just anything can be feminism these days if you try hard well, enough. Well, yeah, at this point. Because the internet. Noticing this common thing here, it's just we like those isms. We're fan of we're fan of the ism thing. Well, there's a lot to that. I mean, and I just wanted to uh, note the one just to sort of like tie it into what we've been talking about. And Christophs, I have mentioned this to you, Heaton. I don't know if you've seen this, but I think my favorite new weird radical online political development is something called MAGA communism. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, that sounds like the worst thing in the world. Oh my God, everything I hate round up into a ball. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, <laughs> okay, I opened up Pandora's box here. What do you want to know? Man, 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 dude, 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 I, one, I'm stunned. Two, first idea in my head, I want these MAGA communists to hang out with national <laughs> yeah, what, Bolsheviks. What fresh hell is MAGA communism, Alex? Okay, well, here's the funny thing that you say, because Chris Jobs just invoked the national Bolshevists. And I, you know, find myself following these so-called MAGA communists. They're mostly streamers. They they have a lot of crossover with populist right and left podcasters and stuff. Oh, like the Sneeko guy, right? No, Sneeko's a more of a, I don't, I think Sneeko's just kind of like a, a silly man. Uh, I'm thinking more people like, I don't really want to name them because I don't want to give them more <laughs> exposure because they're silly, but uh, they, they're basically tankies. Not everyone, not everyone is like uh, that one guy who constantly Googles his name. So I, I think it's pretty safe. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm talking about people like uh, there's this activist named Jackson Hinkle, who I think he was the one who kind of coined the term mega communist. There's this guy named Infrared Haas is what he goes by. They're basically tankies. I think actually, Christoph, you might have actually shared an image of this Haas guy uh, when you were talking about tankies on Twitter recently. And it might have been you. It might have been someone else. But the point is these guys are... I think they might have gotten to some Dugan into some traditionalism because I've seen posts they've made and they reference things like uh, traditional values. They like to reference Rene Ganon. They like to uh, basically invoke what Dugan would call fourth way politics instead of, or, or fourth position, if you will. They're just using uh, like populist terminology and that is how they're able to justify the use of the word communism. But I think the point that I'm you know, making of bringing it up, aside from it just being kind of silly <laughs> inherently, is it communism in America is essentially always a LARP, to use another role-playing term. It's a LARP. I don't think most of these people are actually serious. They just want to make money off of having a weird brand. Uh, maybe that's too cynical, but I just I don't buy MAGA communism as a sincere ideology for a second as being anything remotely communist. I think it is basically national Bolshevism in disguise. This is the the, the litmus test I've come up with uh, actually through talking to Freddie DeBoer. OK, um, when, whenever you meet anybody in the United States that claims to be a Marxist or communist, just immediately go, what, what do you think of rate of exploitation? <laughs> if they have some opinion at all on rate of exploitation, then they're probably a Marxist. If they don't know what you're talking about 
talking about they're they're just trying to get laid in college or they hate their dad or something. They're, they don't actually know what any of the underlying ideology is. I have a very special thing here because, you know, um, I, I have Lenin's complete works at mom's house, you know, among other things. And uh, there's one article that I recommend everyone uh, to read. You know, if you want to find out what Lenin thought of all this stuff, um, there's, there's one of his writings called What is the Free Grain Market? What in, what in his mind is free trade in grain? What does it mean if grain would be traded freely among you know, people in free market instead of controlled by the state? What does he say? Let me tell you. I'll, I'll give you a small hint. There is not a single word about economy in that whole article. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe then that kind of answers your question from before is that's what cultural Marxism is, is, is people LARPing <laughs> in that sense, you know, maybe that, maybe that's all, maybe, maybe that's the answer. <laughs> I, w- I would like to say this is sad and silly, but I guess this is a natural kind of extension here. I mean, at one point, again, I, I've noticed more and more because of this war and how it has impacted everything. For one, I am a true believer that the United Nations has to go. We have to fight, figure something else in its place. And secondly, it kind of made me think, you know, if we if we have the Security Council in place, that, that's an, an ancient institution that is totally unfit for the modern world. You know, the world is changing. The world has changed in the last 20 years since I've been alive. I've seen the changes when we went from like Nokia 33s, like black and white phones. And I think that these isms and this kind of political schizophrenia, kind of the, the confusion of whole society is just that maybe our social values, our, our language, our way of thinking is kind of, you know, stuck in the past in a way. Over here in, in my end of the world, I could explain this because a lot of people are stuck in this so-called post-Soviet mentality, as we like to call it, build capitalism, but stick to Soviet ideals. I don't know how it's like in the West, but I definitely think that the base of change in technology and how our lives have actually changed is way faster than, you know, we have evolved political thought processes to explain it properly. This is a thing why I consider philosophy to be important thing, because in a way, even though it's only in academia or, or something, it sort of defines the way of thinking about things, it provides paradigms for which, you know, people can then produce intellectual work. And, yeah. now, and now the definitions of old are no longer functional, to be honest. We're trying to explain how a computer works using the language that only knows clockwork. This is because because if you think about it, like Rene Descartes, he, Cogito Ergo Sum, comes from an era where everything was clockwork. Clockwork was the high-tech thing. Therefore, also comes the deism of George Washington, the, the clockmaker that winds up everything. You know, at that point, they thought, you know, God was a clockmaker. Now, there's a lot of things. You've probably heard this saying that, you know, God's probably a programmer. Think about how this technology addresses this stuff. We we can only think in concepts that we can describe, mm-hmm. and then we try to describe some abstract things, and, it, and it's a mishmash, okay? I guess this is what it means to live in some sort of... a border period. I mean, right now, post-Cold War, peace is ended and we're living in a transition thing. I mean, I don't know. We're going to get a new lost generation in Eastern Europe. Sadly, by this point, I think I am one of the lost generation of Eastern Europe because I don't fucking know. It is what it is. Christoph, me, me, me or Alex, one of us will marry you and bring you over to the States if it gets <laughs> real bad, okay? Oh, wait, yeah, gay marriage illegal there. It is. Never yes, thought yes. of that. You know, I never, I thought never about thought of this yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I think you're you're very much right about the um. What, what's that saying? Generals are always fighting the last war. Yeah, yeah. That that thing, except we as a society are trying to explain new phenomenons and changing world order using the terms of the past. I'm guilty of that. Like I was, 
raised in the in the 80s, but I'm from Oklahoma, which is basically the 50s. <laughs> so I think very much in terms of old Cold War ideology, and I'm thinking in terms of uh, the state versus the the free market, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's no longer really the battle that's going on in the United States. And it's also not really ideological in the United States. It is to our Marxist friends. I think it is becoming increasingly class-based. Alex, you mentioned a moment ago that um, Steve Bannon is invoking peasant language and peasant revolt language. I think that that's accurate. And the, the new battle lines in the United States that are confusing everybody are the, the Republican Party's increasingly the dive bar blue collar party and the Democratic Party is increasingly the upper middle class managerial party. And in the, the transition that we're seeing in the states is largely cultural and economic. It's not really ideological, but we're still expressing everything as though it's an ideological battle. But that's kind of fallen by the wayside. An important thing to note about this, Heaton, because this draws parallels with the Russian situation there. Western liberals are often hated by the average person in, in Russia, not because you know they, they're, they're evil or anything, but because... People in Russia are poorer than in the West, obviously. And to get those liberal ideas and Western ideologies, you kind of have to be able to go to the Western countries and see something that's happening there. The, the liberal ideas spread among, first, the rich people who could afford to send their kids to schools abroad and stuff like that. And then those kids grew up, and now we have like Russian opposition journalists like Maxim Kotz and Michael Naki and a bunch of people whom you don't know, but who my Latvian and Eastern European audience will definitely know. They're, they're super famous here. And I kind of try to comment this. And these guys have always been sitting in this echo of Moscow radio station, which is super famous and whatever. But they've been always acting like... And they are the smug elites who will now teach the dumb people how to live. The inherent smugness and always showing off how much better we are in comparison to you. Yeah, that's everywhere. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why Russian opposition, even Russian opposition who are anti-war and anti-Putin, why they're not loved in Ukraine or like anywhere else really outside of Russia itself. And they don't even understand why, but they've kept this language, but in the sense of the war as well. I mean, they... Uh, they try to figure out how, how Russia could leave this war, but still be a hegemon in the area. They simply cannot fathom in their heads an Eastern Europe where Russia does not dominate their neighboring countries, where you know people not do not automatically know Russian. And then they continue showing how smug and better they are, even though they are totally anti-Putin, totally anti-war. They still, by how they say things, by how they formulate their thoughts, they still constantly show off the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, of course Latvians should all know Russian. Why not? We are just, you know, better, obviously. It's just irritating. And I think the smugness kind of also helped put in state power, if you think about it. There was, there was a poll that happened recently in the United States where um, they asked the group of police um, if you could think of one word to describe conservatives and one word to describe liberals, what would you mm. pick? And what they came up with was crazy for conservatives and preachy for liberals. And Interesting. they leaned towards conservative. Like if that is your definition and you're like, that guy's batshit crazy, but that person talks down to me, most people mm -hmm. would actually kind of prefer the crazy person over somebody that, that is teetering over them as a superior. This might just be a human thing, but I think it's a quintessentially American thing where we culturally place so much value on not being talked down to. I mean, it's part of our national myth is that's in essence, like obviously there is a lot of, you know, economic factors and a lot of uh, political factors and, and so on and so forth for the revolution. But if you boil it down to its rhetorical mythological essence, 
the founding of America was us saying, nah, you're not going to talk down to us, King. That's not what, that's not how we roll here, yep. you know? Yeah. And I think that says you <laughs> could be the motto of America. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I can then give you kind of the, the Russia's kind of national idea. Their idea constantly has been that there's always the good czar and that there are always the bad boyars, you know, the bad nobility class who are not informing Putin enough. If Putin only mm. would knew, would know about all these troubles that we're facing, we would clearly win. The good czar, bad boyars mm. is the constant theme throughout all of this. It's like hoping for. A good wise monarch. It's it's funny. It's it's let's invoke our uh, our mutual pal Dan Carlin, who says like you know when you're talking about monarchy, it's a roll of the monarchy dice. You either get a madman or a brilliant a Cyrus. You know it's it's that's like it's it's the ultimate in gambling. Currently, they've they've rolled they've rolled the thirteen, and they have a basically a mafia cartel boss running the whole thing. That's <laughs> exactly. I I think you can also uh, kind of um, put a little bit of a, a a cultural filter on our our European friends, and in particular our British friends. I, I now am going to invite a bunch of hate mail on this. I, I spent a lot of time in the United Kingdom. I love Scotland. I'm I'm there all the time. I was there three months last year, so I say this from a, a deep place of respect and love. One of the things that I notice about the the British British mindset, which I find interesting compared to the American mindset, is the American mindset is very much, um, I will build my porch and if the city has a problem with it, come at me. Like It's my porch, right? Whereas the, the British have a mindset of kind of before you do anything, you need to go get permission from a superior uh, of, well, like, oh, I'd like to paint my house. Well, first thing I have to do is go ask the town council if I'm allowed to paint my house. Uh, I'd like to plant tulips. Are we allowed to plant tulips in this part of town? And it, and I, I think it comes out of this longstanding, longstanding, longstanding thousand-year period where the people were just beaten up and flogged by lords forever. And a lot of the people that hated that came over to America uh, and and became oftentimes obstinately diffident. And there, there are downsides to having an Old West, I'll shoot you if you look at me funny mindset. But the, the British tend to have a, a, a more kind of go with it, knuckle under, um, and and do what the authorities tell you kind of mindset, which is different than that that Old West middle finger mindset. Think, by the way, but talking about the mindset, one thing that is supremely interesting here is that Russians in, in propaganda and just in everyday lives, if because I've asked them, you know, what do you think of Americans? Because again, I have been lucky enough, and only because of you, dear listeners, and people who will have me over. Because thankfully, I have never paid for a hotel in the United States. There's always someone that I can crash with, so I'm super thankful. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able, you know, I wouldn't be able to afford to go. To be honest, but no, you wouldn't. <laughs> Hotels are insane here. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just staying with people, and you know, I, I'm I'm kind of privileged in this. This there are not many Eastern European people who you know have visited so many places in the United States as I have. Sometimes there is a talk about America, and the number one thing that uh, my my Russian friends say about Americans, what they you know they say it as an insult, so you understand, is that the Americans put profit above everything else. So that, that, that's that's an insult to you. Well, and to, to, to their credit, I think that one of the things that America gets wrong is we tend to rhetorically describe ourselves as a family values culture. And I think that's incorrect. I think we're really a work culture where like work is extremely important, the American identity. Yeah. Uh, and I would say overly so. I think that we place too much uh, value on work and too much value on career, um, where for most people that are in an office environment, uh, if you went to your boss and went, hey, I'm not going to be here two o'clock on Tuesday because my daughter's got a recital and clearly that's more important than my job, like that would be kind of crazy through large sectors of the United States, where I don't think that would be crazy in like Italy. And, and to their credit, they might even fire you for that. 
Yeah. On the other hand, over here, at least, well, from what I've seen, in the post-Soviet sphere, it's getting better now, obviously. But for a long time in the older generation, it's always been like, you know, starting your own business, doing something on your own is considered something evil and criminal. Oh. Yeah. Because again, again, because of the 90s, since, you know, the only people who had money to start anything and privatization was all run by organized crime. So at, at one point for a long time, like being a businessman instantly meant being a crook uh, here in these parts. So it's, a, again, different attitude. I, I just wanted to note, Chris Jeffs, that, that that's really funny you bring that up again, because I remember I think it was the very first time we talked and we were like sort of like just getting to know each other. We were kind of bonding because I had heard you say in the past, but you repeated this to me that when you started Eastern border, all your, you got a big influx of Western listeners. Cause we we're just like, we want to learn about this. You were also on the Dan Carlin message board. So they all knew who you were, but like your Latvian friends and people you knew at home were like their, their response wasn't good for you starting your own, you know, podcast doing your own thing. They were oh, like, they hated my ass. They, they were like, why would you do that? And I, I remember just like, when I heard that story, I was just like, Latvia sounds so much like just traditional Chinese culture. Because that's literally the same attitude like Chinese parents give their kids when they say, because my partner, Molly, she started a small business and, you know, she has supportive parents, but uh, like there, there are plenty of people that, you know, if she had told them in China, they would have, and this is according to her, they would have been like, why are you not just going back to school? Like, why aren't you, why aren't you becoming a doctor or a lawyer? Like that really, that cliche is real. It is very real. I spent six years of my childhood studying in Japanese language and culture school, which was funded by the embassy. Thanks, mom. Really, she enrolled me in that one. It was a super one. But I got to learn, you know, about Japanese culture. We had Japanese teachers and everything. And, and yeah, that's one thing that I also noticed because there are a lot of comedians on YouTube and a lot of them are Asian and they make jokes about Asian parents and all this whatnot. And I kind of recognize my own childhood in this. There are a lot of similarities between, between Eastern Europe and East Asia. And there's a lot of stuff that, we have in common with the United States, mind you, that the United States probably doesn't have with Western Europe, because Western Europe is also its own beast. We have a lot more common with people that we think, you know, we're are super distant from us than maybe with someone who's like closer to us anyways. And if we can't even put cultural influences in what's common with each other in a solid square box and define everything, how are we supposed to define such a nebulous thing as political beliefs, especially in such turbulent times as these, when literally there's a war in Europe again. It's crazy. It's, it's, the world's gone mad, at least here in these parts. I don't know about you guys. You, you guys can like just complain that the United States is sending too much money to Ukraine or something. I wish I had those problems, you know. Right, right. Yeah. I do find myself thinking that a, an unaudited blank check to any country is just not a good idea. But I'm also unwilling to, and this is just probably any leftover neocon tendencies I have from my early 20s, but I also can't, like in, in, a, in a very deep moral sense, just write off the idea of supporting Ukraine. I just can't. It's sort of like why I wasn't able to morally say that, like getting rid of Saddam Hussein, I wasn't able to morally say that was wrong because it was good to get rid of him. It's just that everything surrounding that that moral claim was incorrect. He was an evil guy that deserved to die, but the the net loss I think outweighed the the justice which was accomplished. If 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 we knew in advance what the the mortality toll would be on the Iraqis, let alone the United States military, I think that 
if if that had been up for a vote, do you guys want to sacrifice 400,000 people to get this guy out? Most people would have said, no, that price is too high. Um, the reason I bring that up too, I think is relevant to what we're, what we just, you know, what you just brought up is it's what we talked about when I think you had me and Jack from Secret Police on. And I was trying to explain, here's why there is a contingent of people in the United States who are just at their core resistant to the idea of us getting involved in anything overseas, even Ukraine. It's because we've had... Like that's sort of what we're dealing with is a sort of like mass memory of wasted money and life over here. It's one of those things where I can sympathize with, with both sides. And I think there is a reason to be sort of skeptical of all the rah-rah pro-Ukraine, pro-US involvement uh, crowd, because just five minutes ago, they were complaining about, you know, us being involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. And and, and see, comrade, this is what I can pull out my, um, my bit more left-leaning side here. This is why income inequality is a fucking bad thing. This is why government has to fix it, because United States is by far the richest country on planet Earth, by far. Except that a lot of that income is concentrated in the top, top 1%, right? And of course, a person, everyday person who is working hard to, you know, make a living and is suffering a lot, especially with your healthcare prices. I mean, oh my God, if, if I would ever get sick in the United States, I would be instantly dead or something. But the thing is, the thing is, you're a super rich country, but the wealth is only seen by the few. And you know what? You should probably learn a bit from Bismarck. <laughs> Give it an inch so that, you know, things would calm down. I think so. Well, let's, let's, let's finish this one up. It's just a complex situation so, here. Uh, uh, so uh, this, this has been wonderful. I, just, I have to take off for very legal reasons that are unrelated to this. I cannot stress how legal the event I'm about to go to is. <laughs> no one needs to look into it. It's very legal. I've had a great time talking. Um, to, to push back a little bit on you, Christoph, something that I think gets left out of the inequality conversation in the United States is that all of the metrics by which we understand inequality um, that go off of the U.S. Census, which is where those numbers are coming from for every publication and every think tank, um, literally does not include... Uh, redistribution that comes through social safety net, subsidies, welfare, or stuff taken off the, the top by taxes. So wait, 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 it does not. It does not. It does no. here. I it, mean, it, I, in the United States, I, I'm, I'm saying this very clearly. And like in, anybody that disagrees with me, please do your own research because you will you will find this to be true for reasons that made sense back when we started doing inequality metrics um, through the census. Back then, it made sense to do it this way, where we were doing it per household. Uh, rather than per income earner. And we were also looking at um, just this net income because there was no social safety net at the time. Uh, right now, if two doctors are married and they're making $200,000 a year, uh, and I am, I'm not married, I, I have my own household, it looks like that household's making significantly more than me and they're paying taxes and they're losing that, but we're not including that as part of it. And I'm getting money theoretically through healthcare subsidies or whatever. The inequality is a thing in the United States, but I think it's greatly, greatly exaggerated. And the problem with those metrics that we mm -hmm. use is literally no amount of literally no amount of taxation or redistribution would rectify that based on the current metrics we're using. And so it, it's kind of a fool's errand to try unless we understand that. So that that being said, I'll leave on a high note. Uh, I have very much enjoyed talking to you both. And uh, Christoph, to your point that um, it is very difficult to have conversations about ideology when it's this big grab bag. Uh, I think a lot of the time what people are really wanting to do is just form a team and hate another team. And we're using words as cudgels rather than using words as a means by which to enlighten each other. And what we all need to do, what we all need to work on is to remember that most people – 
and certainly in my country, and I think probably in Latvia as well, most people are actually fairly decent human beings that want good things for everybody. And it would behoove us in the United States to remember that we're actually on the same team. And what we're arguing about is the methodology by which we arrive at a desired outcome. And we need to have fights. We need to have really good fights because these are important issues. Lives are at stake. Livelihoods are at stake. But the fact that somebody might want to socialize something or nationalize something doesn't make them a bad person any more than it makes me a bad person for thinking that markets work very well. And, and the way to handle this is to approach people as as fellow humans that are probably intelligent and, and have positive motivations and argue with the ideas rather than try to demonize the person that's coming up with it. Let me just wrap this up while, while you're still here. It's just that what I understood from this conversation this is, you know, trying to define any current political ideas as socialism, which is the 19th, late 19th century ideology anyways. That would be just as silly in modern day as, uh, say, you know, uh, determining your election day by, um, I don't know, uh, when, when, when crops are to be harvested and after that. Oh, wait, to Google how your election date is, is happening, both in Latvia and in the United States. thing is that we're kind of stuck in the past a bit too much. Well, for the record, we pick our election day largely around how I could get credit in Iowa for corn subsidies if I'm running for president. I think that's the really big one. But that probably does go back to that same phenomenon if we go back far enough. Once again, and this happens every time Alex is on the show, we have a proud tradition of admitting in the end that, oh yeah, the problem that we have tried to solve here and explain, yeah, it, it's a complex issue, as everything. There's no, there's no singular <laughs> there's, and, and the thing is, that's the most important part, which I also want to push through, is that, you know, think for yourself, analyze information, research, and, and give in to such meanderings, because... Time spent actually thinking about problems and, and the big picture to put some order in your life is, is never wasted. And this has been like catharsis for me as well, because, well, for really, thanks for, for being here. And uh, we, we end up kind of like, you know, kind of like Socrates, you know, in his old works, you know, you get asked a bunch of questions and in the, in the end you understand that it's a bit limited. But we have thought about it. You know nothing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed talking to you both. Kristaps, I'd, lo I'd love to have you back on The Political Orphanage. Alex, you, you strike me as a super smart guy with a wonderfully dulcet voice. I would love for you to come on The Political Orphanage. Thank you. His voice is so awesome. Like, seriously. It's great. <laughs> Kristaps was gushing over that recently, and I got all blushy. To, to your listeners, <laughs> yes. uh, Kristaps a great guy. I want to say that I know you personally, and um, for, for your fans, Kristaps, um, uh, I know that there are a lot of people who like you and enjoy what you're doing. I just want to tell them that you're actually a very nice person and a fun person in real life and that their faith in you is well-placed. Uh, and for any of them that enjoy this conversation, I invite them to come check out my show, The Political Orphanage. And I would like to say thank you to Political Orphanage people because, again, uh, yeah, car explosion and, and getting into trouble with Wagner Group, like I said, has been a bit rough. And uh, thank you, Mr. Heaton, for really helping me out and, and everyone from Political Orphanage I, I know many of you are listening here. You really helped me out, and I appreciate what you've been doing a lot. And hey, my highest recommendations: go check out Political Orphanage. Yes, I, I second that recommendation. Of course, and of course, History Impossible as well. Thank you. Uh, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> such a smooth will, voice, man. <laughs> okay, it's it's like it's like if Not silk even... could be translated into audio, but then given more masculine undertones. Alex, there put we go. This on your like show it. page. <laughs> I'm going to put that on. It's just going to be a quote at the top of the of the website. <laughs> Thank you once again for coming. And uh, I hope that this was a bit more enlightening to, to you. Because, again, it's always a mess. But then again, the world's a mess. Thank you for making it a little more orderly. Do svidanya, tovarish. And as always, happiness is mandatory. Do svidanya. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.